Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I travel to one of the world's hotspots, Iceland, to take a look at how this small island nation in the North Atlantic is coping with a surge in tourism. We've already seen how other destinations are trying to grapple with the exponential increase in tourist demand. Italy has now banned cruise ships from the Canal of Venice. And in an almost unbelievable move, in Hawaii, the mayor of Maui has actually pleaded with airlines to reduce their flights to his island. They just can't handle the numbers. But what about Iceland? I sat down with its president, Gudna Johannesson, as well as with the First Lady, Eliza Reid, to talk about it. And then, I'll switch gears entirely as we acknowledge the 25th anniversary of one of the worst aviation accidents in American history, the crash of TWA Flight 800 in July 1996. I reported extensively on the disaster back then, as well as on one of the most intense and complicated accident investigations in history. Former lead NTSB accident investigator Greg Fife, who also worked on another bad crash that year, Value Jet Flight 592, remembers what happened, the lessons learned, and the lessons applied. First up, my conversation with Iceland's president, Gudna Johannesson. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Mr. President, Iceland was one of the first countries to truly open to tourism during COVID-19. 
what gave you the confidence and the, and the uh, I guess, the confidence to do that? Uh, common sense and uh, uh, geographical luck. We are an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. Uh, we are a nation of uh, people who can constantly scribble uh, or constantly quibble about minor details. But when it comes to big issues, uh, we try to stick together. The uh, pandemic taught us the need to respect science, the need to respect experience and knowledge of people in the know, uh, the, the scientists. Uh, and therefore, the people of Iceland decided to do this together, to listen to the uh, wisdom of science, to heed uh, directives and uh, suggestions about how to tackle the pandemic. Therefore, we were in a position quite early on uh, to uh, uh, allow people from abroad to visit us again. And here we are now. We're not out of the woods yet, but we uh, find ourselves in a fortunate position and uh, we hope to be able to uh, continue uh, inviting people from abroad to experience what there is to uh, see and do here in Iceland. When I first came to Iceland probably 20 years ago, the actual ratio of tourists to the people who live here was about one to one. Yeah. Today it's seven to one. It's a it's humongous growth. It is indeed. Uh, we traditionally in the 20th century and up to the present day have relied heavily on fisheries. It was one of our big industries. And in an average year, you would get maybe 250,000 tons of cod. Uh, but in a good tourist year, in the last decade or so, you get about 25,000 tons of tourists. <laughs> uh, tourism has been a blessing for Iceland. Overwhelmingly positive experience. Of course, there are issues we need to consider. Uh, people come from abroad to Iceland, for instance, to enjoy solitude in the interior, in the magnificent interior. But it's difficult to enjoy solitude in the interior when there are hundreds of people around you trying to enjoy solitude at the same time. You have to have a balance. We have to have a balance. Uh, and it needs to be admitted that in the years before the pandemic, the growth was tremendous and we managed it, but there were some warning signs and I hope that in the years after this uh, sea change, after this uh, tremendous shock to the world, we will have learned and we will have been able to uh, see what we can do even better to make sure that uh, our guests from abroad will all enjoy a pleasurable experience. Take you know, warm memories from Iceland uh, after having left anything but, you know, well, some money. <laughs> Got to leave the money. Yeah, got to leave the money. But you know, the pandemic, I mean, beware the law of, you know, of uh, unintentional consequences. Yeah. The pandemic really allowed the world, especially the world tourism countries, to, to do a reset, yeah. to, to do a do-over, to kind of rethink how they manage growth when growth comes back. Because there's tremendous pent-up demand, as you know, everywhere. People cannot wait to get back out and travel. Knowing that's going to happen, how do you then prepare for that to manage that growth? Travel is good. Travel enriches people. Travel, uh, when done correctly, uh, uh, enhances uh, tolerance and respect for other peoples, other cultures. Uh, so we should encourage travel, uh, responsible travel, sustainable travel. Uh, 
So uh, I look to Venice now, for instance, where they've banned the uh, uh, arrival of big cruise ships. Uh, I'm not saying that must be done here, but uh, the idea behind it is that we should not always uh, look at how many people we can get at the same time, at the same spot. So the lesson for us would be to uh, look at past experience and try to do even better as we, as we move on. Well, you know, you mentioned you're an island in the North Atlantic. Another island that we know very well in the United States is our only island state, Hawaii. Yeah. They were the first state to really lock down during the pandemic and not let anybody in without quarantine, very sophisticated tracing uh, and, and follow through. And now, of course, that most Americans have been vaccinated and the numbers are increasing, Hawaii is now opening back up to visitors from their own country, right, from the United States. And yet, just recently, the mayor of Maui appealed to the airlines to say, could you please reduce the number of your flights? We can't handle the numbers. Yeah, I mean, everything has to be uh, done uh, in accordance with the development of the, of the pandemic. And it would be of benefit to no one if we were to uh, be uh, careless. Uh, so uh, I have full confidence that we will continue in the path of uh, caution, uh, but careful optimism as well. We have done relatively well here in Iceland, and there is no reason to... Uh, worry that uh, we will all of a sudden uh, throw caution to the wind. Uh, we also need to uh, uh, trust people. People should not travel if they think that uh, they could cause uh, harm to others. And uh, we uh, need to have means to uh, verify that people come here without the risk of spreading uh, the virus. So uh, that is just the way of life now for tourism, for travel in general around the world. In fact, I think that the, the metrics may have, have morphed from worrying about the vaccination levels of where you're going to worrying about the vaccination levels of the people who want to come. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we were able uh, late June this year to uh, open up our borders to uh, tourists from the US or from travelers uh, from the US and um, who've been vaccinated who've been vaccinated and uh, uh, we just uh, hope to be able to uh, widen that uh, approach so that uh, vaccinated people from all the world can can come here and that we can travel as well we love to travel as well well you're travelers we're travelers by nature and uh, uh, our tourism industry, uh, as you mentioned, the ratio between Icelanders, or between people living on this island and tourists has grown quite uh, drastically in, in recent decades. Uh, we like to travel as well. Uh, therefore, it CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It is in everybody's interest uh, here in Iceland that we, we, that we uh, manage the pandemic. So not only 
to welcome others, but also to make sure that we can uh, continue traveling abroad. But it's also sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because as a tourism-dependent economy, 30, the contribution to your GDP, you know, if you look at the averages, uh, the World Travel and Tourism Council basically says the world general average of, of that is about 11% of GDP. Here it's, it's more than three times that. It's nearly 35%. Yeah. And um, we have been used in our economy to uh, sh <laughs> suffer and enjoy fluctuations. Fishing is a fluctuating uh, way of life. Will you have a good fishing season or not? Will the herring appear or will it not? Will the cod stocks uh, grow stronger or weaker? We're used to fluctuations, but uh, having said that, uh, predictability in the tourism industry is desired. Uh, you don't want to build a hotel on the off chance that people might show up. So uh, what I think we have learned uh, as we enjoyed the tourist boom is to uh, uh, maybe uh, prepare better uh, and uh, plan in advance. And I have full confidence that we will uh, develop from a nation uh, where tourism appeared all of a sudden, this mass tourism, to a nation where uh, tourism is a solid, uh, predictable, uh, sustainable, viable means of the economy. And we will just say that uh, more is not necessarily better. We must, must make sure that everyone who comes to Iceland enjoys the experience and uh, feels that things are done well here. That would be my hope for the future of the tourism industry in Iceland. You know, you mentioned the symbolism of the fish being, the fish running, yeah. having a good fishing season. But you don't really have to worry too much about a good tourism season because if you build it, pairs that they're going to come. Yeah, that's the uh, positive aspect of responsible tourism, that uh, there is like this uh, feeling of stability. But uh, tourists also like to return and they like to maybe experience something new. So I would like to see uh, a tourist from the States or wherever coming to Iceland, maybe uh, with her or his family and uh, uh, visiting Reykjavik to begin with, take the Golden Circle, enjoy the Blue Lagoon. Explain the Golden Circle. The Golden Circle is a tour, uh, one day tour from Reykjavik. Uh, you go to uh, Thingvellir, the old parliament site, where Icelanders founded the parliament in the year 930. Then you move on to uh, Geysir, uh, the uh, hot spring. Uh, the name derives uh, from that particular hot spring, Geysir, the international name. It bursts, or, or other geysers around bursts, every 10-15 minutes or so. Magnificent sight to see. And then onwards to Gullfoss, the golden waterfall, a spectacular waterfall. Uh, where you sense the power of nature. Uh, I still get goosebumps, even though I've seen it countless times. And all along you are led by, one should hope and expect, a tourist guide full of wisdom and wit. And you return to Reykjavik, presumably, or, or the capital region, full of fun memories, full of videos and images. And you will say to yourself, wow, that was majestic, that was wonderful. But this is only one part of the country. Next time, next time we go to Iceland, we're going to go to the northeast. See Tetifoss, an even more majestic waterfall. See the uh, 
the spas up by Husavik, go whale watching or go to Melraka Slieta where you can uh, experience solitude or the uh, Arctic circle almost touching Iceland or something like that. So my hope is that uh, you will want to come back for more and that is the essence of good a sustainable tourism, I think. Because you can also spread it out. You can spread it out, and we need to do that here in Iceland. Uh, the southwestern part of the country is uh, most popular with tourists, but there's so much more to see. You know, I use Iceland as an example of how the world all too often takes travel and tourism and the power of travel and tourism for granted. And of course, the example that I use was the volcano in 2010. Yeah. A name I cannot pronounce, nor can I spell it, so I want to let you do it. Eja Fjalla Jökull. But let me tell you, I remember this story. One of your colleagues in, uh, in the US media was trying to pronounce it live on the news and just looked at it in desperation and said, I'm just going to call it I Forgot My Yogurt. Eja Fjalla Jökull. But it, wor that's, it worked. It worked. It worked. 2010, we had just suffered uh, a tremendous banking crisis, of course. the collapse of the Icelandic banking system. And we felt that uh, after that, nobody would want to come to Iceland. Then we had this volcanic eruption, disrupting flights all over Europe, all over the North Atlantic. And it shut down for five or six days. Shut down, yes. People were in, uh, in uh, crisis all over the place. And we felt, all right, that's just the end of Iceland as we know it. Nobody will ever think positively about Iceland. On the contrary, people felt after the eruption, after the effects of the eruption, after the ash had uh, stopped disrupting flights, that uh, this is a curious place. Let's go to Iceland. And it had a tremendous positive effect on interest in Iceland, on tourism in Iceland. So now we've had this pandemic and again, shutting down uh, travel for a longer period of time with more uh, serious consequences. And again, what happens? We happen to have a volcanic eruption. On a good, clear night here at Bessastadir, you can see the red flames coming from the volcano. It is conveniently located as things are now. It is uh, not a threat to, uh, to uh, towns or infrastructure. Uh, it has not cost lives. It is what you could call a perfect tourist eruption because it's easy to access as eruptions go as eruptions go and let me tell you these are serious matters uh, and let's take one comparison uh, about the same time there was a volcanic eruption in one of the Caribbean islands causing mass evacuation and with disastrous consequences for the people there so let's not take volcanic eruptions lightly but this particular one here in Iceland has not caused damage and has increased greatly uh, interest in Iceland. So the last time I went up there, I could see, I would guess around one in 10 persons was uh, living in Iceland. The rest were tourists and predominantly from the US. And it is one magnificent, it is an amazing sight to see. Almost as if it was produced by Disney. You could say that, or you could say like, okay, here in Iceland, here at the presidential residence, we have like our own, own version of the red button. So whenever we need to draw attention to Iceland for our own convenient purposes, we just push it and up comes a friendly eruption. So you're basically starting a conspiracy theory right now. I might do that, yes, but uh, let me just not confirm or deny it. <laughs> what are the lessons that you learned over the last 16 months because of the pandemic as it relates to travel and tourism? The importance of tourism for the economy of Iceland, but more than that, prioritize what matters. What matters is saving lives. What matters is the health of people the world over. So let's not worry about tourism. Let's worry about 
getting people healthy and well. You know, one of the things we've experienced in, in the United States, I'm sure you've experienced it here, but especially in the United States when people are used to going to work every day in an office, everybody working remotely, everybody siloed, uh, and not everybody wanted to go back to work in an office. And yours is one of the first countries that really experimented, first of all, with a four-day work week. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be working. Seems to be working. We still have to see how it works out. Let me not paint a too rosy a picture of, of this experience or Iceland in general. But what we learned during the pandemic is that we can't do many things without uh, actually being in a specific location. You can work from home, you can deliver lectures via you know, online uh, stuff like Zoom and so on and so forth. And while we want to meet in person, there are ways to uh, engage without having to fly for a meeting and then return. So I think the pandemic has taught us uh, the need to uh, consider carefully whether we can uh, reduce uh, unnecessary uh, summits, unnecessary meetings, unnecessary conferences and use, uh, use online uh, venues in instead. Uh, we, it's a live and learn experience. We've had countless examples of all kinds of troubles. I remember big international summit with other heads of state, uh, prime ministers, dignitaries, experts, probably all of them with a team of assistants uh, preparing for that particular event. And then maybe one minute into a speech or so, uh, the person speaking would be interrupted by the words from a moderator, Mr. President, Mr. Prime Minister, Madam President, Madam Prime Minister, you have to take off unmute or you have to, you have to unmute, you, you have to push <laughs> the unmute button. So we live and learn. Uh, uh, that's on the technology level. Uh, exactly, exactly. But on the human connection level, travel is still essential. Travel is essential. Travel enhances tolerance. Travel enhances healthy curiosity in others. Uh, travel uh, makes us understand what we can do better in our home country, uh, what we can learn from others. Travel makes us understand that other people might be able to teach us something or that we might be able to learn something from others. Other travel might make us understand that there are parts of the world where people do not enjoy the luxuries that we enjoy. Take Iceland, for example. So I hope that travel continues, sustainable travel, uh, responsible travel. And I hope that uh, we will see a world in the future after the pandemic where we also realize that uh, we cannot take anything for granted anymore. Back to the law of unintended consequences, you know, we saw the cruise industry basically come to a halt during this. Mm -hmm. Ships being quarantined, idled, nobody cruising anywhere, right? The entire industry coming to a stop. And yet, because they can literally move their assets, hotels can't do that, mm -hmm. right? But cruise lines can. You now have a number of cruise ships here that never would have been here before as home-ported cruise ships calling Iceland their home port. Yeah, I mean, uh, the tourist industry has to be flexible. Otherwise, you cannot survive. This is just one example of, of the fact that uh, you have to adapt to uh, new circumstances. I mean, this week we have Crystal Endeavor sailing from Iceland, a brand new ship, and they needed to put it somewhere, right? Yeah. Not necessarily in the United States. Boom, Iceland. Exactly, and I hope its passengers uh, will enjoy what Iceland has to offer and feel that uh, uh, this was just a welcome uh, new part of their experience. Speaking of welcome new experience, and I say this as an embarrassed American, most of my fellow Americans, and I know there are people listening to the show right now who are going to hate me for saying this, but it's true, are geographically ignorant. They don't even know where Indiana is. How are they going to find Iceland? So for those who actually do find Iceland, what's been their experience? What's the biggest surprise to them that they had no clue about once they get here? Hmm. 
Well, let's take some positive aspects. I would hope that they would enjoy the fact that practically everyone can speak to them in English, that uh, they can get the assistance they need whenever there is something that uh, comes up. But I'm not talking just about the process right. of travel. Yeah. I'm talking about what they're not expecting to see. And then all of a sudden it's like, what's the wow? What's the wow? The wow would be that spectacular waterfall you had absolutely not expected to see at that location. The wow would be, ooh, a minute ago we had to suffer strong winds and gusts and rain. Now it's perfectly sunny and nice. Well, uh, you can actually experience every weather condition you want in a single day. Exactly. Four seasons in one day, as the song goes. The starkness. We do not uh, have castles and palaces to show you. Uh, we do not have houses built centuries ago. We are now in one of the oldest houses in Iceland, built in the late 18th century. We have castles and palaces of other types. We have the mountains, we have the glaciers, we have the cliffs, we have the rivers, we have the volcanoes, we have the hot springs. We have something that you're not likely to see in Indiana or in Kansas. But having said that, of course, you have Yellowstone and so on and so forth. What I really do not want to do as head of state, as an Icelander, proud of my country and my heritage, is to become a salesperson for my country. We have an island that is uh, a sight to see. We have a strong and decent society with many positive aspects, but there are also aspects of Icelandic society that are negative, that we need to improve on. And I would hope that a tourist coming to Iceland will back on return back home, say to herself or himself, yeah, it's a great country, but some things they can do even better. Like what? We can uh, improve on making sure that everybody has a right to demonstrate what they're capable of. We need to make sure that we move even further on the road uh, towards full gender equality. We need to make sure that the significant numbers of people from abroad who are living and working here are treated with the same respect as others, uh, get access to the same rights as others. We need to make sure that uh, people who come from abroad to live and work here do not find themselves as not outcasts, but uh, uh, some, somehow outside uh, Icelandic society. We need to make sure that the negative aspects of uh, nationalism do not fester here, that we can be proud of our country, our heritage, our history, our culture, but at the same time without uh, pathetic boasting, belittling others, without any elements of uh, racism, and it's a work in progress. You know, going back to fishing for one second, when you were at the university, yeah. you did your paper on the cod wars. Yes. <coughs> and and uh, I remember when I first came to Iceland, I was right there in the harbor, and I looked out, and I and I saw it right. I saw the argument right in front of me. On the left side, I saw the tour boats that were going to go out and whale watch. Yeah. <laughs> and on the right side, I saw the, the boats that were going out to kill whales. Indeed. Yeah. Has, has Iceland finally reconciled that? I think so. If you take the species whale as an income for Iceland, then watching a whale is way more profitable than hunting a whale. We are an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. Uh, we need to harness in a responsible and sustainable way the resources that nature has given us. That includes marine resources, uh, that includes 
the waterfall that you can enjoy. You can use you it. You love that waterfall, don't you? I am, yeah, I'm all for the waterfalls. You can, well, let's take a waterfall. I mean, how can that waterfall produce income for Iceland? Through harnessing, uh, through uh, building a dam and a power station and creating geothermal, uh, creating, sorry, uh, hydro power, hy uh, hydro energy. Hydroelectric power. Yeah, hydroelectric power, green power, but also by uh, keeping that waterfall intact and uh, driving uh, tourists towards that uh, waterfall or having them hike to that waterfall and enjoy the wonders of that waterfall. It's all about balance. It's all about sustainability. It's all about common sense. And it's all about uh, not getting stuck in uh, ways that seemed sensible uh, generation ago, we are moving on. Uh, the uh, Icelanders and the tourists who come to Iceland are increasingly more uh, environmentally conscious and that is the only way forward. So you've been able to convince people that whales alive are worth more than whales dead. Yeah, you can put it that way. Welcome to Iceland. Mr. President, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. My thanks to President Johannesson. If the name Eliza Reid doesn't sound Icelandic, it's because it's not. The First Lady of Iceland is actually Canadian and she met her husband when they were both students in England. But Eliza Reid is not your stereotypical first lady, as you'll soon discover in our conversation. Well, you're not just the first lady of Iceland, you're an expat first lady of Iceland. That's right, that's right. From Canada. I am originally from small town Canada, just outside of Ottawa, the capital. So this has been a brave new world for you. Absolutely. Well, I've been living here now for 18 years, and my husband and I met in the UK in graduate school, but I think it's safe to say that when we met almost a quarter century ago, I did not anticipate that I would one day be the spouse to the head of state of Iceland. Uh, we, we can get that covered right now. Yeah. <laughs> But did you even know anything about Iceland at that time? Well, I knew, uh, I think when I met him first, I knew that Reykjavik was the capital because I played that computer game, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, all the time when I was a kid. So I liked memorizing capitals. But that, that was really all I knew. That yeah. was the exact sum total. That was it. Exactly. I've learned more since then, I'm happy I, I to say. I certainly hope so. <laughs> it's been an interesting learning curve. Absolutely, absolutely. And an incredible privilege. When your friends come to visit you, and I think they do. They do. What's the biggest surprise for them about Iceland? I think one of the things, and, and probably my biggest first impression that I recall when I first visited, are these open spaces and the pristine, clean air. And I think maybe what surprises people is that the, the cliche word otherworldly is so often used with Iceland because our landscape is so different and our environment and in a, in a relatively small space you have glaciers and volcanoes as we know and all kinds of natural wonders, but it's a five hour flight from New York. So I think what surprises people is that they think that this place is on the other side of planet Earth and it's hard to get to, but it's actually really simple to get to. It is, mm -hmm. it is, and it's, it's accessible. Absolutely, and then when people get here, you know, this is the safest country in the world, uh, English is spoken by a lot of people, the tourist infrastructure is really well developed, so it's, it's a wonderful way to experience something completely different in a really secure way. So I often recommend it as well to people who maybe aren't so used to traveling internationally, to give them a chance to experience something new but they don't need to be worried that they're going to uh, be be sort of taken advantage of as tourists. It's a good appetizer. Exactly. And yet in the wake of COVID-19 it's also quite literally a place where you can breathe. Absolutely, absolutely. We have been very fortunate here with, uh, with the situation in the pandemic. 
Right now, we have a really high vaccination rate. So uh, just over 80% of the population is fully vaccinated. 90% are vaccinated of people over the age of 16. Uh, there's been a lot of trust between our medical experts and the government and the people. And so we trust what the medical experts have been telling us in terms of what we need to do to keep ourselves and our loved ones safe and have been following those guidelines. And that has shown in, in results. So now, as you see yourself when you're here in Iceland, once you're able to show that negative test or proof, proof of vaccination. And I, I had my barcode, I had my boarding pass, I had my proof of vaccination. Exactly. And then you're in the country and you're done. And we have no other restrictions here other than telling people to use their common sense. You know, wash your hands, don't go out amongst people if you don't feel well. All of those kinds of things that we should be doing all the time. No matter what. Exactly. So we've learned some interesting things, not that we expected to. That's right, that's right. But I think an advantage here too, again, you know, we have a small population density. So even in, in ordinary times and here with no restrictions, you're not on crowded public transportation. You're not on busy sidewalks. You're not in museums and art galleries that are crammed with people or with long lines to get into them. So in any case, you're not pushed uh, up next to strangers all the time, unless I guess you go to a nightclub late at night. But I guess the social distancing is sort of baked in. Yeah, I guess you could say that. When you first came here, what was the biggest surprise for you? I think, I, I don't know if I want to say surprise because I had visited a few times, um, but I loved the clean air and the atmosphere and I like the, the society as a whole. I think when we visit a country, maybe as tourists and we go places, we remember nature, we remember the food, we remember the activities, but it's the people who give us the memories and, the, and leave the things in our hearts really of what we stay. And, and the Icelandic people are great. And I think as, a, as someone who grew up in Canada, who knows about the value of nature, who knows about the obligations of a society looking after each other, I think that that is something that I see as well in Icelandic society. And certainly as an immigrant to this country who has become first lady, I'm often asked if that's ever been a problem for me, if there has ever been any negative sentiment of, of having an immigrant first lady here. And, and I'm happy to say that I have not experienced it directly, at least. I think people are, are, are very happy of the diversity of our society. Of course, there's one thing to research the country and learn up about it because you're marrying the man who's <laughs> from here, right? Yes. But there is no manual of operations for first lady. Absolutely not. And that's something that I say a lot is that there is no instruction book on how to be first lady. And I think, um, especially because my husband had never sought public office before, and this was something that happened over a very short period of time, six weeks, um, it was, we were really thrown in the deep end. And at first I found that very intimidating because I wanted to follow all the rules. I wanted to, I knew I wanted to be active and, and, and use the opportunity, but I didn't want to bring disrespect to the office or go outside whatever my place was meant to be. But now I see the fact that there is no rule book just as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to use my voice and to help shape dialogue. So it wasn't an issue of stay in your lane? No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're really proud of in Iceland is that uh, the World Economic Forum's Gender Equality Index has raised rated Iceland number one country in the world to be a woman for the past 12 years. 
And I thought, well, here I am, I've come into this role that mostly women have held, only women have held in Iceland, even though we've had a female president. And I thought what I could do is sort of confound expectations about what it is to be a female spouse to a male head of state. Well, that brings up an interesting point because I remember a quote from somebody from the European Commission. Mm -hmm. You know that quote. I do. Tell me what that quote was. Well, there was an Instagram post uh, at I think the G7 meeting in 2019 where the, po the spouses of the people meeting were posted gazing out to sea in this beautiful weather and a sunset, I think. On and the stage photo, just it, about. It, absolutely. And the quote was, I think, the lighter side of the force, as if these women who are all, you know, intelligent uh, people with their talents and skills in their own right were just sort of policy muses for their husbands as, as props. And that upset me. <laughs> I believe what you said is, I'm not my husband's handbag. Yes, that's it. I, I wrote a piece for the New York Times in which I said that, that uh, we are not props for our spouses. And I said, I'm not my husband's handbag to be uh, carried, placed silently by his side at public appearances. And you got some interesting responses to that. I did. I got a lot of responses from especially women who are married to men who are better known than them, who maybe tend to be get identified next to their spouses primarily uh, as somebody's wife, which chops away at somebody's identity a little bit, even though, of course, I'm very proud of my husband, for instance, and, and all of his accomplishments. So I felt, um, I felt very encouraged by, that, uh, by writing that story, and I would encourage other women or other people in that situation to also share their stories. Let's go back to gender equality, mm -hmm. because that's something that's still near and dear to you. Absolutely. That you're still, you're writing a book about I'm it. I'm writing a book about it, yep, comes out in February. And I decided, you know, is there something unique in Iceland that has made this the best country in the world As to be part a woman? of the culture. As part of the culture or not, or the policies, or the history, or whatever it is. And the answer is? Well, yes and no. It's a vague, it's a vague answer, but I, for my book, I went around and I spoke to dozens of women around the country and just ordinary, regular women who are doing different things, not the first one to do this or that, just to get their experiences and to paint a kind of portrait about what it's like to live as a woman in quote unquote, the world's best country. And I think we see that in some senses, yes, there are advantages here. There are uh, a lot of strong women throughout Icelandic history. There are a lot of policies in place that have made it easier, for instance, to have a real the high ratio of women who are working outside of the home. And there is also a lot of general acceptance that gender equality is better for societies as a whole. It's not something that increases women's power at the expense of men's power. It's something that, that makes society better for everyone. And we see that gender equal societies are more peaceful, they're more prosperous, they increase life expectancy for both women and for men, and it's just the right thing to do. Um, but I didn't want to say, yes, there's something unique about Iceland that can't be done elsewhere, because there's also a message in that book that says, we all have voices and we all have an opportunity to use them to a varying or lessing, a lesser degree. And so it's important for us to speak up when we see injustice, when we see inequality, and try to elevate each other's voices and have a variety of opinions. And the good news is you have that platform. Exactly. And I thought, that's why I have to try to use that platform, even though at first I noticed this irony that I have a platform to talk about gender equality because of something my husband achieved. A little irony there. A little irony there, but either I can sit at home and decide not to do it, or I can just use my voice. What's the famous Hillary Clinton quote that I'm not home baking cookies? Exactly. However, there's always that continuing quote that I hear 
from every woman who's got a career, mm -hmm. who has kids, mm -hmm. who has a family. Mm -hmm. How do you do it all? Right. And people ask this question a lot. I don't know what my husband answered when you asked him this question. I didn't ask him this yeah, question. Yeah, interestingly. And he has more kids than I have because he has a daughter from his first marriage. Um, so that's an interesting thing is that it's women who ask the question as if I'm the one who has the responsibility of balancing my job and my children. Um, but my husband also has children and a job and has to balance that all as well. And we're very fortunate in the sense that we are a, a married uh, two-parent family, both people working full-time, and we share parenting responsibilities and working responsibilities and balance it all together. And I think if you're looking for tangible tips to things, I would say that it has to do um, with being willing to drop balls because you can't do everything and, and to not sort of have high expectations and, and high standards. But we're very fortunate in Iceland, which is such a child and family friendly society, that we have these systems in place, that we have heavily subsidized childcare, that we live in an area where the distances are close to driving, um, that we live in a place where employers understand that often people have children. So my husband will say, oh, our daughter has a parent-teacher interview this morning at 10, we can't book anything then, I've got to go to that parent-teacher interview. And, and that just works. And you show up. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because until you get here, mm -hmm. it doesn't really sink in that, and I, I don't want to be literal about this, but you sort, everybody sort of knows everybody. They do. <laughs> Maybe a little, bit, a little bit less with the immigrant community. Yeah. And I always like to add as well that 15% of the country here is foreign born or have foreign passports. So people like me who've acquired citizenship aren't even included in that total. And there are more immigrants living here than there are senior citizens. So we see a huge increase in uh, multiculturalism in this country and diversity that has happened in the last uh, 15, 20 years. And a younger population. And a younger population, yeah. A dynamic, progressive, forward-looking population. Which is economic economically dependent on tourism. It, tourism is the biggest contributor to the country's GDP, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of pride in showing visitors what we have to offer here. And one of the challenges, because you know we've just seen 16 months of a, of a world shut down with the largest industry in the world being shut down along with it, traveling right. and tourism. That's right. But you know what a great thing about Iceland is, is this is a country that has been settled for, people who lived here for the last 1,200 years, and there were volcanoes, and there were eruptions, and there was famine. And I don't know of any other country where you can have a, an unexpected, uh, last minute, drastic shift, and people just deal with it. And so I think here as a society overall, all of a sudden everything was shut. Everything stopped in, in a very rapid period of oh, time yeah. and went from 100 miles an hour to nothing. Nobody could have really expected the, the speed and, and, and the extent to which this would happen. And rather than sort of wallow in it or look to place blame or things, Icelanders, we just get on with it and said, all right, we have to do this. We have to secure our most vulnerable population. We have to make sure the health is all right. We have to make sure people will still have jobs when they're done, when people don't need to worry about uh, not getting paid if they take time off work. And then we will rebuild our, our economy. And last summer, for instance, when tourism, foreign tourism was decimated, but we were encouraged not to travel abroad, Icelanders uh, took to their cars. country. Absolutely, and everything was full. And so, especially hotels, for instance, in the countryside, were saying we've had we've had great summers. People have been visiting, and it's all it's all Icelanders. Their biggest challenge, in a sense, was trying to update their website so that they had information available in Icelandic and not in all the other languages. <laughs> 
But now the challenge is how do you manage the growth because it's coming back. Absolutely. But that's also a good thing that's come into place is because there was this increased growth in the last 10 years, there have been all kinds of development plans put into place to make sure that uh, infrastructure, that natural sites are being maintained in a sustainable way. And two of the biggest ways in which we're able to do that, aside from, say, all the infrastructure, is encouraging people to travel widely around the country, not necessarily just to concentrate in the capital area, in this golden circle area, but to really take time to travel around and see these different sites that are located throughout the country. And secondly, to travel all year round. You know, again, I was telling you that it's only a five hour flight from New York. It's just as easy to fly here as it is to fly to LA from New York. But in January, it's also warmer here than it is in New York. So the, the marketing people maybe didn't call Iceland the best there, that people think, you know, it's, it's freezing cold in the wintertime. Definitely, it's darker. Definitely, you have to be flexible about the weather, um, but it's not freezing cold. You just have to be creative. Absolutely. And isn't that one of the fun parts about travel? Exactly. So what's the biggest surprise to you that, as you discovered Iceland over the last 18 years? Yeah. Uh, for you about the country, what was the thing, what was the wow moment for you? Gosh, the wow moment. I'm sure I'll think about it five minutes after I, I talk to you. I think a wow moment for me personally, less as a tourist and more as an immigrant, you were talking about how everybody knows each other, was the first time my husband and I were walking down the main street and we ran to somebody that I knew and that he didn't know. And I had to introduce them to him rather than the other way around. And that moment I felt like, ah, now I live here too. This is my country <laughs> as well. And that was, that was a nice moment for me. And you held it over him ever since. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My thanks to the First Lady of Iceland, Eliza Reid. And now, for a piece of sad but important history, the story of the explosion and crash of TWA Flight 800, just moments after taking off from New York in July 1996, and the exhaustive investigation that followed. Greg Fife, former lead investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board, tells the story. You know, this is a very interesting year for me, uh, not to mention the fact that it makes me feel older to tell you this, but we are now acknowledging the 25th anniversary of two of the most major aviation disasters in American history. To put this in context, the worst aviation disaster in American history actually happened back in 1979 on Memorial Day weekend. That was American Airlines Flight 191 going from Chicago to Los Angeles. For those of you who remember, on takeoff, the left engine of a DC-10 literally ripped off the wing. The plane essentially rolled over, became inverted, and, and basically exploded into the ground. Uh, I mean, over 270 people killed, both in the air and on the ground. Uh, that's a fascinating story of accident investigation and, and detective work, no doubt about that. And, uh, and then came something that happened, actually two things that happened 25 years ago, this week, uh, in May of 1996, and just two months later, in July of 1996, July 17th of 1996, uh, and that was ValueJet in the Everglades and TWA Flight 800 in New York. And joining me now is someone I have worked with for just about that long, if not longer. Uh, he was the lead NTSB investigator on the ValueJet crash, basically trying to find out what happened what lessons could be learned from it, and most importantly, what lessons could be applied from it. Greg Fyth. Greg's out in Hawaii right now working on another case, but I'm glad he could join us today. Greg, welcome. 
Peter, it's always good to be on the show with you. You know, you are one of my favorites that I can talk to about aviation and aviation safety. Well, let's do just that. Uh, let's start with May of 1996, uh, the value jet plane, the DC-9, uh, taking off from, uh, from Miami. Uh, it didn't get very far before it corkscrewed into the Everglades at a very rapid speed. Uh, and as we all know, no one survived. It was later determined that some improperly stored oxygen canisters ignited in the cargo hold, and that led to uh, a fire that was not detected, and the, and the heat from that fire was so intense, it essentially melted the control cables of the plane. The pilot never had a chance. She could never recover because she had no control, and the rest of the story we all know. But it took you a while to figure that one out, didn't it? It did, Peter. You know, one of the things about uh, airplane accidents is that a lot of times they are not in convenient places. Not that we want to have accidents, but in this particular instance, with the airplane having crashed deep into the Everglades, it took a lot of choreography to actually get into the site and then actually recover wreckage so that we could examine it to determine what, in fact, the origin of that in-flight fire was. And, and in just in doing that, it took us you know, several months to do that. But it wasn't until about the second or third week that we really started to focus in on what we believe could be the origin of that in-flight fire, which we knew started down in a cargo hold. And if I remember correctly, and, I, and by the way, I do remember correctly on this one, I remember you surrounded by guys with shotguns because there were alligators in there. Yes, yes. One of the things uh, that we had to deal with as the investigator in charge is working on site safety to make sure that none of the team, and we had a large team, several hundred people working at any one time out there, we had to worry about the conditions. That was, it was high heat. Uh, we had 95 degree days, 95 plus uh, percent humidity, which right there can cause heat stroke and, and a lot of other physiological issues. But we also had to worry about the critters because that in fact was one of our primary concerns. We had alligators, we had snakes, we had flies that if you let two of them latch onto you, they'd probably carry you away. They were that big. And so site safety was a, a primary issue in order for us to get the job done. And of course, there was the accumulation of the physical evidence, not to get too gruesome about it, but I think the largest piece of wreckage you found was maybe the size of a saucepan. I mean, this, this plane I mean, entered the water at such a high speed that everything basically got compressed. Total destruction of the aircraft, the airplane was doing well over 450 knots, which is about 500 miles an hour when it went in. We had a large debris field, and because the Everglades is sawgrass and, and what they call cap rock, which is well below the surface, um, a lot of it got embedded. And even to this day, 25 years later, there is still wreckage that does bubble up. Uh, from time to time, the Wildlife Service goes out there, patrols the area, and if they see anything, they pick it up. Um, yeah, the, Everglades yeah. does, the Everglades doesn't give up much, and, um, and that's why it took us so long to get enough physical evidence when we were there to be able to uh, at least do an examination of the wreckage. And, of course, we know now what the catalytic reason was for the fire, but you have to go back to 1983, 13 years earlier, and the and the and a crash landing, if you will, of an Air Canada DC nine to understand the underlying reasons here, and that was on that particular flight from Dallas to Toronto, 
uh, a passenger went into the uh, la- the rear a- lavatory and lit a cigarette, threw it into the toilet, but it didn't go out. It started a fire in that av- in that lavatory. There were no smoke detectors on the plane. There was no fire suppression system on the plane. And by the time they realized they had a fire, uh, and the, by the time they were able to miraculously land that plane, a, no- a lot of people died. And that was the most astonishing thing, uh, Peter, was that we've had these in-flight fires in the past, but they've become more isolated rather than systemic. And so when ValueJet 592 happened, again, we didn't have very good smoke detection and we didn't have fire suppression down in those cargo holds, which even though we had other events, the one that you just mentioned, there was also an event involving a uh, American Airlines MD-80 that ended up making an emergency landing in Nashville. We had called as the NTSB for fire smoke detection and fire suppression. It went unheeded. The FAA said they're isolated events, don't worry about it. But ValueJet really brought it home because of the casualties involved and, of course, the uh, the media coverage, making it so visible to the regulators that they had to do something. And please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but in the investigation that I did, it became apparent to me that that fire started before they even took off. And, 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 and that pilot never had a chance because... There was no notification in the cockpit they even had a problem. And by the time they realized they did have a problem, when smoke was entering the cabin, the heat was so intense in the in the cargo hold, it literally melted the control cables and the end was 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 finalized. And as you as and as you said, Greg, you know, the recommendations from the NTSB were very specific. And in the past they were very specific. Every year the NTSB publishes what they call their 10 most wanted list of urgent safety recommendations that they've made to the FAA that have gone unheeded, and this is certainly one of them. Absolutely. You're, you're correct with regard to, yes, we believe that the fire did start on the ground. They were loading these um, oxygen generators that had been taken off other airplanes that ValueJet was refurbishing. They didn't properly cap them. There's just a one-cent plastic cap that goes on the percussion cap. And so when they threw all of these 144 oxygen generators into a, you know, several boxes, they weren't properly protected. So because it's an exothermic reaction, that is, there's actually no fire when you pull the lanyard to bring the oxygen mask to your face in the event of a loss of oxygen when the flight attendant tells you to do that, you're actually starting an exothermic reaction with the chemical that's in these tennis ball-sized canisters. Well, you put that into a box, and these things produce a lot of heat, about four to 500 degrees of heat. You get spontaneous combustion of the cardboard, and because they were in the cargo hold with luggage and mail and everything else, everything then caught fire. And as you said, Peter, that fire was around 2,500 to 3,000 degrees in that forward cargo hold, and all the control cables for that aircraft run right over the top of that cargo hold, and as they burn through, the pilots lost control. They had no ability to maintain, uh, you know, the airplane in an attitude that could get them back to the airport. And the crazy thing is that that accident happened in May of 1996. The FAA moved slowly again, and they did not mandate the installation of smoke detection and fire suppression systems on narrow-bodied planes, meaning DC-9s and 737s, and to a certain extent 727s, until many years later. Uh, Absolutely. A good example of, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Peter, and that's the sad thing, is that a lot of people right after that accident 
there were a number of legacy carriers that said, oh, yes, we're going to do it voluntarily. We want to protect our passengers. They never did it. They never did it. Unbelievable. Speaking of another interesting case, in fact, one of the more fascinating cases of the last century was TWA Flight 800. That crash happened 25 years ago today. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that case that I covered and that, of course, you still teach in terms of how do you investigate a crash and how do you stop all the conspiracy theories that surround a crash when the actual cause is pretty well in front of you. Uh, it's a wild story, and uh, 25 years later, we're still, we are still learning from it. We've been speaking to Greg Fife, who I've been working with literally for 25 years, former lead investigator with the NTSB, who investigates deep down and dirty every airplane accident that you see in the news. Uh, the two that we're talking about today, because we're at the 25th anniversary of each of them, is Value Jet Flight 592 in the Everglades in Florida, and TWA Flight 800 that blew up 25 years ago today. Greg, I was in New York when that happened. Uh, as many of my listeners know, I'm also a volunteer fireman. My fire department actually responded to that because the wreckage was littering the Atlantic Ocean just a couple of miles off Long Island and Fire Island, New York. But what an amazing investigation that was. Uh, a plane takes off for, for Paris with about 245 people on board, and at about 8,000 feet, or a little bit less than 8,000 feet, it literally is blown up in the air. Uh, every conspiracy theory thought it was either A, terrorism, uh, and B, they thought it was a missile launched by maybe even the U.S. Navy that's, that brought the plane down by accident. Uh, I remember having covered Pan Am 103, that the very first question I asked everybody, including members of your team, is, which way was the metal bent? Was the metal, was the metal bent inwards or outwards? And everybody came back to me and said, outwards, which meant to me it couldn't have been a missile. Correct. And in fact, there's a lot of physical evidence that, you know, to this day, trying to explain it to all the conspiracy theorists, they, they think, well, then if it wasn't a missile, then it had to be a bomb and it blew it up from the inside out, kind of like Pan Am 103. But again, there are a lot of telltale signs. And as you know, Peter, in studying the dynamics of a fuel-based explosive fire, like in this case. And once we determined that it couldn't have been a missile, then we had to look inside the plane. What was the source that blew it from the inside out? Of course, the next thought was it had to be a bomb, just like Pan Am 103, right? Semtex it was Semtex explosives packed inside a boombox in that case uh, that blew out from the, uh, from the cargo hold. Well, we couldn't find the telltale signs of a chemical explosion that would be left by a bomb. In fact, none of, none of it at all. So we had to rule that out. So what's interesting is this. When you take a look at all the evidence here, then you have to look at the eyewitnesses. And that's where the conspiracy theory started. Because people tend to see things and hear things in a different sequence when they then remember them again. And some of them thought they saw a missile streaking towards the plane. When in fact, they heard the explosion first. And when they looked up, what they thought they saw was a missile streaking towards the plane. It wasn't. It was burning fuel streaming from the plane. And that conspiracy theory exists today. I talk to people all the time. I'm sure you do too, Peter. And they will not believe the fact that the, you know, the government said that it was an accidental explosion. They really believe that it was shot down. Well, to put this in perspective, remember, this happened July 17th, 1996. The Olympics were just starting in Atlanta. People were concerned about terrorism. They thought it might even be a bomb. 
Uh, you may remember there were some trace residents, trace residue of some bomb materials they found on seats on the plane. Turns out the plane had been used to train bomb-sniffing dogs. That's what that was. Um, then they thought it was a bomb in the, in, in the, in the inside com- uh, cargo compartment. That, that was completely ruled out based on the way the metal was bent and what was on the metal. And when they did further investigation, what they really found out was that this plane was built, you know, it was, a, it was a 21 or 22-year-old plane at that point, and there was nothing in the maintenance manual that talked about the possibility of electrical wires in fuel tanks being so corroded by the toxicity of the fuel that the insulation might be worn off. And if the insulation was worn off and there's any sort of ignition source and those wires arc and you only have 70 gallons of fuel in the center tank, which they didn't fill for that flight, there's your explosion. Exactly. That's a a great characterization of, of that. And this was not the first time that fuel tanks have exploded on airplanes. There is some history of that. And that's because of these issues. It has now since been, uh, of course, corrected. But there was a demonstrated history, and that's why we can show that this was not a one-off, it wasn't an explosion, wasn't an, uh, a missile, but in fact it was a systemic issue that has since been corrected by design. Exactly, and, and really, the, the bottom line is this. It's not just the work that you do to figure out what they call the probable cause. It's the work that comes after that. What are your recommendations? How are you going to make sure that this never happens again? And that's how we learn from things. Uh, And it took this accident to do that in terms of maintaining the integrity of fuel tanks on older airplanes. And thank God we, we now know how to do that. But the real bottom line for everybody is that the NTSB continues to do Herculean work. Uh, they, they, they do unbelievable work against incredible challenges, uh, and in, in your case, and sometimes you know, un, unusual and, and harsh environments. And uh, if anybody wants to read those accident reports, they're fascinating reading. I wish the FAA would spend more time reading them and implementing the recommendations done by the NTSB. And if you want to get a copy of that NTSB most wanted list. It's a public document. You can get it. Just call the NTSB and ask them. They'll tell you where to find it online. They might even send it to you. Greg Fife on this uh, sort of a sober anniversary, 25 years after TWA Flight 800, and two months before that, 25 anniversary, 25th anniversary of ValueJet 592. Thanks for joining us on this weekend. My thanks to Greg Fife, to the president of Iceland, and to the first lady. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.